0: This program is made possible by BibleWayMedia.org overseen by the Uluga'a Church of Christ in Uloga, Oklahoma. You're listening to Opening the Scriptures with Don Boyd. Welcome to the program today.
1: This is Don Boyd with the Moody Church of Christ. I want to welcome you to Opening the Scriptures. We're going to continue in our studies in the book of Job today and we're going to be beginning in God's speech to Job here in chapter 38, verse 25, continuing uh, God continuing to ask Job various questions. In Job 38, 25, he says, Job who cut the channel for rain to fall from the thunderclouds and made the way for lightning. Wayne Jackson on page 129 of his book, The Book of Job, made this comment and I quote, The text seems to indicate that there was a connection between lightning and the formation of raindrops. When fast rising air rubs against water droplets in a cloud, the top of the cloud becomes negatively charged. If the fast rising air is strong enough to rip the cloud apart so that each half has a different electrical charge, lightning occurs. Scientists believe that the electricity and lightning causes tiny droplets of water vapor to combine and thus form rain. Unquote. But apparently they still do not know, just as Job did not know. In Job thirty eight, twenty six and twenty-seven, God says that he causes the rain to fall in the wilderness where no human is. Job thirty eight 26 and 27. To cause it to rain on the earth where no man is, on the wilderness wherein there is no man, to satisfy the desolate and waste ground, and to cause the bud of the tender herb to spring forth. So God's gracious providence extends to his entire creation, not just human beings. This rain is where no man can be pretended to be causing this rain. So Job, do you know where and when it should rain? In verse 28, God asked Job, is there a father that produces the rain? Job 38, 28, hath the rain a father or who hath begotten the drops of dew? Man is not the father of rain and dew. God is, and man cannot make rain as some have claimed in the past. Only God can do that. In verse 29, God says, Job did a human woman give birth to ice and frost with help of a midwife? Job 38, 29. Out of whose womb came the ice, and the hoary frost of heaven? Who hath gendered it? The word gender there, gendered, from the Hebrew word yalad, Strong's defines this way, to bear young causatively, to beget medically, to act as a midwife. So, in other words, Job answered these three questions. Out of whose womb came the ice? Out of whose womb came the hoary frost? And who hath delivered it? So there are three questions there that Job can't answer. Neither can we. In verse 30 of Job 38, God says, Job, who causes the water to be hidden under the ice? Job 38:30. 30. The waters are hid as with a stone and the face of the deep is frozen. Bodies of water are frozen over to form a layer of insulation so that aquatic life can continue to live. If the water froze from the bottom up instead of the top down, there is no aquatic life that could survive. And then you think about it, waters are hid as with a stone you think about you know ice floats, ice doesn't sink. And then in verses thirty one to thirty three, God asked Job a series of questions about the heavens. In verse thirty one he goes, Job, can you control the stars? Job thirty eight thirty one canst thou bind the sweet influences of Pleiades or loose the bands of Orion? Well, in the literal translation of the Bible, it says this. Can you bind the bands of the Pleiades or loosen the cords of Orion? Pleiades is a group of seven stars that are bound together and move together through space. The appearance of Pleiades represents spring in the northern hemisphere. And these are things you can look up on the internet like I did. Now of Orion, Wayne Jackson made this comment, and I quote, and this is on page 129 of his book. Orion is very a very outstanding constellation of stars that appear as a group to the naked eye, but they are actually vast differences apart in the fact, and are in fact unassociated, hence loosed. So he talks about loosing the bands of Orion there. And the appearance of Orion represents autumn in the northern hemisphere. Whenever you go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 14. Genesis chapter 1, verse 14. It says, And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of heaven to divide the day from the night, And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And then verses 15 and 16. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. So we're looking at the stars here, the constellations and such. Now back in Job 38 verse 32, God says, Job, can you control any of the constellations? Job thirty-eight thirty-two, Canst thou bring forth Mazaroth in his season or canst thou guide Arcturus with his sons? Mazaroth, and this is Strong's definition, it's from the word, Hebrew word Mazarah. It says, some noted constellation only in the plural, perhaps collectively the zodiac. So it's referring to the constellations of the zodiac. And then it also mentions Arcturus, which is also the bear. Uh, Arcturus, from the Hebrew word Aish, Strong defines as the constellation of the great bear perhaps from its migration through the heavens. And Arcturus is the brightest star in the northern sky, therefore the north star. Now he says in verse 33, God says, Job, do you know the laws by which these heavenly bodies are governed? Well, it says there, knowest thou the ordinances of heaven?" Canst thou set the dominion thereof in the earth? In other words, Job, do you know the laws that govern the planets? Can you tell what influence they have on the earth? Now, we know some of the influence of our closest star that the sun has on the earth. The moon has a great influence on the earth as well. Wayne Jackson, on page 130 of his book, made this comment, and I quote, that the moon does exercise a dominion over the earth is, of course, a scientific fact. The moon causes the ocean tides on our planet. Both the earth and the moon exercise gravitational pulls upon one another, though the earth's pull is is stronger, it being the larger body. The earth's pull on the moon helps keep the moon in its orbit, and the moon's pull on the earth causes the tides. The oceans of the earth on that side of our planet which is facing the moon are attracted by the moon's gravitational pull, and so they bulge, causing high tide. At the same time, the waters on the opposite side of the earth bulge as well because the moon's gravity has pulled the solid part of the earth inward. As the water bulges at these two opposite points on the earth, the waters on the remaining two corresponding sides lowers, producing what is called low tide. There are two low tides and two high tides, each 24 hours. So in other words, you look at that and you see someone designed it just right. And that's someone being our creator, God. In verses 34 to 41 of Job 38, God asks Job a series of questions about the weather and also the animal world. In verse 34, God says, Job, can you command the clouds and make it rain? Verse 34 says, Canst thou lift up thy voice to the clouds that abundance of waters may cover thee? There have always been men that claim to be able to make rain, but only God can do that. In verse 35, God says Job, can you send for lightning and have it obey your voice? Verse 35, canst thou send lightnings that they may go and say unto thee, here we are. Well, in other words, does lightning say to you that it is your servant and ready to do your Bidding. In verse 36, he says, Job, who put wisdom and understanding into his creation? Verse 36, who hath put wisdom in the inward parts or who hath given understanding to the heart? Well, there are two lines of thought about this verse. One is, who put wisdom and understanding in human beings? And since the context before and after this verse refer to weather, then the second view is this. Who gave the elements wisdom and understanding to do God's bidding? And then in verse 37, God says, Job, can you count the water droplets in the clouds or prevent the rain?" Verse 37 says, who can number the clouds in wisdom? Or who can stay the bottles of heaven? The word clouds there from the Hebrew word shakak means this according to Strong's. A powder as beaten small, (laughs) by analogy, a thin vapor, by extension, the firmament. So what we're looking at here in verse 37 is the vapor that makes up the clouds and not the clouds themselves. Now the clouds are compared with bottles that hold rain. And he says, Job, can you stop them from being poured out there? When he says, who can stay the bottles of heaven? In verse 38, God says, Can you stop the rain when dust gets hard and clods cling to each other? Job 38, 38. When the dust groweth into hardness and the clods cleave fast together. And then you think about it, God is saying, Job, uh, how does dust get hard? Well, And then he switches over to animal life in verse thirty nine. He says, Job, do you hunt for the lion? Wilt thou hunt the prey for the lion or fill the appetite of the young lions? You know, you think about it, you take pull up a picture there on the internet and you look at a lion laying in the grass that lioness blends in with its surroundings and almost vanishes to the view of its prey. God, I mean Job, God is saying, did you give that understanding to the lioness? In verse 41, he says, Job, do you feed the raven or its young after they're kicked out of the nest? Verse 41 Who provideth for the raven his food? And when his young ones cry unto God, they wander for lack of meat. Albert Barnes quotes this way. He says, Skubitzer suggests that the reason why the raven is specified here rather than other fowls is that it is an offensive bird and that God means to state that no object however regarded by man, is beneath his notice. He carefully provides for the needs of all his creatures, And then also Barnes makes this comment, and I quote, Bochart observes that the raven expels the young from the nest as soon as they're able to fly. In this condition, being unable to obtain food by their own exertions, They make a croaking noise, and God is said to hear it and to supply their needs. So in chapter 38, God is asking Job basically this Do you know this, and this, and this, and this? If not, why are you questioning me? God continues his questioning of Job about the animal world in chapter 39. So God has asked Job many questions that Job can't answer. God questioned Job about the universe, the animal kingdom, the weather. In chapter 39, God will continue his questions on the animal kingdom to show Job and us that we have no right to question the God of heaven. First of all, in Job 39 verses 1 to 4, God asks Job what he knows about the wild goats and their behavior. He says in verse one, Job, do you know when the wild goats bring forth their young? Knowest thou the time when the wild goats of the rock bring forth? Or canst thou mark when the hinds do calve? You know, Job might know the answer for domesticated animals, but not for this animal. The wild goats are animals that roam on inaccessible cliffs far from where people could observe them. Now, the word "hinds" here may refer to deer, but here it probably refers to the wild goat. And the word "hinds" there translated from the Hebrew word ayala, it strongly just says, simply means a doe. Albert Barnes says, quote, God knew all their instincts and habits and on the inaccessible cliffs in the deep dell in the deep dark forest. He was with them and they were the objects of his care. And again, you can go to the internet and type in the wild goat and you'll get a good picture of one there and also a cave drawing on those animals. In verse verse 2 of chapter 39... God says, Job, do you know their gestation period and when the young are brought forth? 39.2. Canst thou number the months that they fulfill? Or knowest thou the time when they bring forth? You know, It's impossible for Job to know these things because of the inaccessibility of the range of these animals. So Job doesn't, wouldn't know the answer. In verse 3, God says the wild goats have no shepherds to help bring forth their young, Job 39.3. They bow themselves, they bring forth their young ones, they cast out their sorrows. So God's tender care is over these wild creatures where man could have no access to them. In verse 4, God says their young are strong and robust and grow up in the wilderness. He says their young ones are in good liking, they grow up with corn, they go forth and return not unto them. So God preserves and cares for the young until they leave their mother and then also after they leave. In verses 5 through 8, God asked Job what he knows about the wild donkey and its behavior. What do you know about this animal? In verse 5, he says, Job, who set the wild donkey free? Where it says, who has set out the wild donkey free, or who hath loosed the bands of the wild donkey? Well, God is the one that did that, not man. In verse 6, God says that he made the place of residence of the wild donkey, not man. Verse 6 says, whose house I have made in the wilderness and the barren land his dwellings. So God appointed the wild donkey's home in the desert. Wikipedia makes this comment about this animal. The Syrian wild donkey is one meter high at its shoulder, was the smallest equine, and could not be domesticated. Its coloring changed with the seasons, a tawny olive coat for the summer months, and a pale sandy yellow for the winter. It was known, like other onagers, to be untamable and was compared to a thoroughbred horse for its beauty and strength. And again, that's from Wikipedia. In verse 7, the wild donkey is not subject to restraint. Chapter 39 of Job, verse 7. He scorneth the multitude of the city, neither regardeth he the crying of the driver. Well, this animal chose to be alone and free in the wilderness without any kind of a driver. Wikipedia also makes this comment about the wild donkey, and I quote, Xenophon states that horsemen would occasionally chase the donkeys with the donkeys easily able to outrun the horses. He said that the donkeys would only run a short distance ahead of the horses before stopping, waiting for the horses to get closer, and then running ahead yet again. He described the donkeys as impossible to catch without careful planning, unquote. And then in chapter 39, verse 8, God says the wild donkey ranged through the mountain for food that God provided. Chapter 39, verse 8. The range of the mountains is his pasture, and he searcheth after every green thing. So again, man does not provide food for the animal here. It is God that does that. Now, in verses 9 through 12 of chapter 39, God asked Job if he can tame the wild ox. So in verse 9, he just starts out by saying, Job, can you domesticate the wild ox? Chapter 39, verse 9, says, Will the unicorn, the American Standard translates that word, wild ox, be willing to serve thee or abide by thy crib? The word unicorn here, translated from the Hebrew word reem, And Strong's defines that word as wild bull from its conspicuousness. Brown Driver Briggs' Hebrew definitions gives this definition of the word. Probably the great oryx or wild bulls which are now extinct. The exact meaning is not known. Wayne Jackson on pages 82 and 83 of his book makes this comment, and I quote, most scholars believe the word here refers to a large, fierce ox of the ancient world that is now extinct. The translators of the Septuagint rendered "riem" by the term "monokeros" or one horn, on the basis of representations of the wild ox in strict profile, which they found in Babylonian and Egyptian art. It has thus found its way into the King James Version as unicorn, and this is incorrect. So the wild ox. When the bulls would stand sideways, they would appear to have a single horn. Again, which is probably why the King James translators use the word unicorn. Well, there is a picture on the internet of a wild aurochs here, a bull in the museum, zoological museum in Copenhagen. Kind of gives you an idea. Wikipedia gives this illustration, and I quote, Julius Caesar described aurochs in Gaul, those animals which are called uri, or uri. These are a little below the elephant in size and of the appearance, color, and shape of a bull. Their strength and speed are extraordinary. They spare neither man nor wild beast, which they have espied. These the Germans take with, with much pains in pits and kill them, unquote. And Julius Caesar lived from 100 to 44 B.C., so they were still in existence then. And again, you can go to the Internet and type in the wild ox, and you can get various Pictures. Uh, there's a restoration of one from Germany, and there are cave drawings and cave paintings and such like that of them. But then Wikipedia also makes this comment, quote, The last recorded live aurochs a female, died in 1627 in the uh, jacques forest, Poland, from natural causes. The causes of extinction were unrestricted hunting, a narrowing of habitat due to the development of farming, and diseases uh, transmitted by domesticated cattle, Well, you can look at a picture there, and it shows that the bull of the oryx was six feet tall at its shoulder. So that's a huge animal. In Job 39.10, God says, Job, can you bind the wild ox or use him to plow your fields? Job 39.10, canst thou bind the unicorn with his band in the furrow, or will he harrow the valleys after thee? So Job, this animal cannot be tamed, but it's an animal that God created and that God cares for. In verse eleven, God says, Job, can you trust the wild ox as you do a domesticated animal? Job thirty nine, eleven. Wilt thou trust him because his strength is great, or wilt thou leave thy labor to him? The wild ox, you know, it cannot be tamed and it cannot be used like a domesticated animal. So Job, can you do that? Is your power that great? In verse 12, Job, can you trust the wild ox to bring your harvest into the barn? Verse 12, wilt thou believe him that he will bring home thy seed and gather it into thy barn? So the wild ox, it, it can't be controlled like a camel or like a domesticated ox. So God is basically saying, Job, if you cannot manage the wild ox, what makes you think you're qualified to manage its creator? In verses 13 to 18, God asks Job if he understands the ways of the ostrich. He, first of all, he says, Job, did you give wings to the ostrich that cannot fly? Verse 13 says, Gavest thou the goodly wings unto the peacocks, or the wings and feathers unto the ostrich? The word peacocks there in the Hebrew, translated from the Hebrew renin, Strong's defines this way, an ostrich from its whale. Brown Driver Briggs Hebrew definitions describes it there, defines it this way. Something with a piercing cry. Bird of piercing cries, ostrich. And then the word that is translated ostrich here in chapter 39, verse 13, in the King James Version, the Hebrew word notsa, Brown Driver Briggs defines as plumage and feathers. So the American Standard Version translates chapter 39, verse 13 this way. The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but are they the pinions and plumage of love? Now that kind of goes with what he's about to say. In verse 14, He says, God says, Job, do you understand why the ostrich lays their eggs in the sand to hatch? Verse 14 which leaveth her eggs in the earth and warmeth them in dust. Wikipedia makes this comment about the ostrich, and I quote, the female common ostrich lays her fertilized eggs in a single communal nest, a simple pit 30 to 60 centimeters or 12 to 24 inches deep and three meters or 9.8 feet wide. Scraped in the ground by the male. The dominant female lays her eggs first. When it is time to cover them for incubation, she discards extra eggs from the wicker females, leaving about 20 in most cases. And then Wikipedia further gives this comment on the eggs in the nest, and I quote. The eggs are incubated by the females by day and by the males by night. This uses a coloration of the two sexes to escape detection of the nest, as the drab female blends in with the sand while the black male is nearly undetectable in the night. Unquote. So, who gave the ostrich the intelligence for this defense mechanism? Well, God did. In verse 15, God says, Job, why does the ostrich do what it does with the nest? Job thirty-nine fifteen. And forgetteth that the foot may crush them, or that the wild beast may break them. Well, Albert Barnes makes this comment concerning the verse, and I quote, She often wanders away from them also... And does not stay near them to guard them, as most parent birds do, as if she were unmindful of the danger to which they might be exposed when she was absent. The object of all this seems to be to call the attention to the uniqueness in the natural history of this bird, and to observe that there were laws and arrangements in regard regard to it which seemed to show that she was deprived of wisdom, and yet that everything was so ordered as to prove that she was under the care of the Almighty. In verse 16 of Job 39, it says the female ostrich seems to care little about her young. Job 39:16, She is hardened against her young ones as though they were not hers. Her labor is in vain without fear. Wikipedia, again, makes this comment about the ostrich, quote, "...typically the male defends the hatchlings and teaches them to feed, although males and females cooperate in rearing chicks. Fewer than 10% of nests survive the nine-week period of laying and incubation, and of the surviving chicks, only 15% of those survive to one year of age," unquote. And yet, the ostrich survives." by the help of God. In verse 17, God says that he gave the peculiar ways of the ostrich to it, by which it seems to humans to lack wisdom and understanding. Verse 17, because God hath deprived her of wisdom, neither hath he imparted to her understanding. Albert Barnes makes this quote, or comment, and I quote, The meaning is that all this remarkable arrangement which distinguished the ostrich so much from other animals was to be traced to God. It was not the result of chance. It could not be pretended that it was by a human arrangement, but it was the result of divine appointment. Even in this apparent destitution of wisdom, there were reasons which had led to this appointment, and the care and good providence of God could be seen in the preservation of the animal, unquote. Now, he switches to another animal. God, well, he's comparing here. He's going to switch in a little bit. He goes, the physical makeup of the ostrich makes it faster than a horse, This is chapter 39, verse 18. It says, What time she lifteth up herself on high, she scorneth the horse and his rider. Wayne Jackson, on page 83 of his book, stated this, and I quote, Yet when she spreads her feathers high, for balance, she cannot fly, and runs at up to 40 miles an hour, not even a horse can catch her. And then, according to a Google search, how fast can an ostrich run, it says the common ostrich can go up to 43 miles per hour. And then, God asked Job, now here's, you know, he he compared it to the horse, now he's going to switch over to the horse. But it's a particular horse, the war horse, God asked Job if he made the war horse courageous and unafraid of the battle. And that's verses 19 through 25. So, verse 19. Speaking of horses, Job, have you given the horse its strength? Chapter 39, verse 19. Hast thou given the horse strength? Hast thou clothed his neck with thunder? The qualities that God refers to here are those of the war horse. Kyle and Delich in their commentary make this quote or comment, and I quote, After the ostrich, which as the Arabs say is composed of the nature of a bird and a camel, comes the horse in its heroic beauty and impetuous lust for the battle, which is likewise an evidence of the wisdom of the ruler of the world a wisdom which demands the admiration of men." Unquote. In verse 20, God says, "Job, can you make the horse spring forward into battle like a grasshopper?" Job 39:20. "Canst thou make him afraid as a grasshopper? The glory of his nostrils is terrible." Well, the word afraid there in the King James Version is from translated from the Hebrew word ra'ash. Brown Driver Briggs gives this definition. To cause to spring or leap of a horse. The literal translation of the Bible translates Job 39.20 this way. Can you make him leap like a locust? The majesty of his snorting is terrifying. Wayne Jackson on page 83 of his book made this comment, and I quote, Do you empower him to spring forward, not afraid, as the King James Version, like a grasshopper, as he snorts, charging into battle, unquote. And then in verse 21, God gives a graphic description of the war horse. Job 39:21. He paweth in the valley and rejoiceth in his strength. He goeth on to meet the armed men. That horse is impatient. He's ready to rush furiously toward the armed enemy. In verse 22. He says, the horse is unafraid of the weapons of war. Verse 22 says, he mocketh at fear and is not affrighted. Neither turneth he back from the sword. So the war horse is bold and courageous. It's not afraid of the battle. In verse 23, he says, the horse's excitement is intensified as he hears the rattling of the weapons and as he sees the weapons of war, Job 39:23. The quiver rattleth against him, the glittering spear and the shield. The horse is not intimidated by arrows that may whiz past him, and he does not turn back from the enemy's spears and shields. In verse 24, God says the war horse swallows up the ground as he races toward the enemy with fierceness and rage. Job thirty nine twenty four. He swalloweth the ground with fierceness, fierceness and rage. Neither believeth he that it is the sound of the trumpet. So The horse doesn't stand still when the trumpet sounds for it ready to charge. It is impatient. It's excited for the battle to begin. In verse 25, when the trumpet sounds calling him to battle, he neighs and is ready to rush into the conflict. Verse 25, he saith among the trumpets, ha ha, he smelleth the battle afar off the thunder of the captains and the shouting. Now, Kyle and Delitz quote a man named Laird saying this, and I quote him, Docile as a lamb and requiring no other guide than the halter, when the Arab mayor hears the war cry of the tribe and sees the quivering spear of a rider, Her eyes glitter with fire, her blood-red nostrils open wide, her neck is nobly arched, and her tail and mane are raised and spread out to the wind. The Bedouin proverb says that a hybrid mare, when at full speed, should hide her rider between her neck and her tail. Albert Barnes made this comment of the verse, and I quote, Much as people admire the noble horse and much as they take pains to train him for the turf or for battle, yet how seldom do they refer to it as illustrating the power and greatness of the Creator. And it may be added, How seldom do they use the horse as if he were one of the grand and noble works of God. So God is asking Job here, did you create this magnificent animal? Do you know what makes it behave in the way that it does? Well, in verses 26 to 30, Job or God asked Job what he had to do with the actions and physical traits of the birds of prey. In verse 26 of chapter 39, he says job did you teach the hawk how to fly job 39:26 doth the hawk fly by thy wisdom and stretch her wings toward the south Wayne Jackson made this comment concerning this verse on page 84 of his work the book of job quote bird expert peter farbrights Hawks exhibit just about every technique to be seen in the world of flight. Or did Joe program the hawk and her migration route to the south? In recent years, scientists have learned much about bird migration. They know that they plot their migration routes by the sun, stars, etc. But they also admit that in the final analysis, birds follow a far more ancient guidance system and instinct acquired in the egg. From whom? Instinct is a word to cover our ignorance. Unquote. In verse 27 there of chapter 39, God said, Job, do you command the eagle in its lofty flight? Job thirty nine twenty seven. Doth the eagle mount up at thy command and make her nest on high? Eagles have been spotted soaring at 10,000 feet in the air. Adam Clark made this comment, and I quote, The eagle is said to be of so acute of sight that when she is so high in the air that men cannot see her, she can discern a small fish in the water, unquote. In verse 28 of Job 39, God says, Eagle can make their nests where man will not follow. Job 39:28. She dwelleth and abideth on the rock, upon the crag of the rock, and the strong place. You think about it, many eagles make their nest high in the mountains and in the cliffs where man cannot access them. And did you make the eagles do that, Job? And then in verse 29, God mentions the tremendous eyesight there of the eagle. Job 39, 29 from thence she seeketh the prey, and her eyes behold afar off. (laughs) Now you do a Google search on how good are eagles' eyes, and I found this, and I quote, What is the range of the eagle eye? Eagles have a highly developed sense of sight, which allows them to easily spot prey. Eagles have excellent 24. Five vision compared to an average human who has only 20-20 vision. This means that eagles can see things from 20 feet away that we can only see from 5 feet away. And then a Google search on how far can eagles see, and this is from www.nationaleaglecenter.org And it says this, and I quote, An eagle can see something the size of a rabbit running at three miles away, unquote. So God is saying, Job, did you give the eagle her great eyesight? In verse 30 of Job 39, God says, Young eagles are fed freshly killed prey instead of carrion or dead animals. Job 39.30 Her young ones also suck up blood and where the slain are there is she. Albert Barnes made this comment concerning the verse and I quote The strength of the eagle consists in the beak talons and wings such is their power that they are able to convey animals of considerable size alive to their places of abode. They often bear away in this manner lambs, kids, and the young of the gazelle. Three instances at least are known where they have carried off children. In the year 1737 in Norway, A boy upward of two years of age was carried off by an eagle in the side of his parents. Anderson, in his History of Iceland, asserts that in that island, children of four and five years of age have experienced the same fate. And Ray mentions that in one of the orkies, an infant of a year old was seized in the talons of an eagle and convey, conveyed about four miles to its erie, or stronghold, and that's in the Edinburgh Encyclopedia. The principal food of the young eagle is blood, unquote. And then it also says, where the slain are, there is she. Albert Barnes made this comment concerning this verse, or this part, and I quote, Hebrew, the slain, referring perhaps primarily to a field of battle where horses, camels, and human beings lie in confusion. It is not improbable that the Savior had this passage in view when he said, speaking of the approaching destruction of Jerusalem, for wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together, unquote excuse me, Matthew twenty four twenty eight. then, unquote. So, in this chapter, God is basically asking Job, what can you tell me about the animal kingdom? Why do they do what they do? How do they do what they do? Answer me if you know. And God is going to continue his questioning of Job in chapter 40. And this is a good spot for us to stop the lesson today. So we're going to end there uh, at the end of chapter 39. And Lord willing, we'll begin in Job chapter 40 in our next lesson. But again, this is Don Boyd with the Moody Church of Christ. I want to thank you for tuning in today to opening the scriptures. We look forward to being with you next time.
0: When you're in Moody, Missouri, you're invited to visit the Moody Church of Christ, located on Highway E in Moody, Missouri. The congregation there meets on Sunday morning at 10 a.m. for Bible class, 11 a.m. for worship, and then again at 6 p.m. for Sunday evening worship. They also meet at 6 p.m. on Wednesday night for Bible study. We thank you for tuning in today. We hope you enjoyed this program.